So this week and last week, we see a lot of really extreme language from Jesus. If you guys were here last week, you heard Mark Bowder preach about the verse just before this, when Jesus said, if anyone causes any of the, these little ones referring to the disciples to stumble, he would be better off if someone tied a rope around his neck, tied the other end of the rope to a giant boulder, and threw him into the sea. That would be better than the person who causes these little ones to stumble. And then today, Jesus is, after addressing external forces that would cause the disciples to stumble, to falter in their faith, or to be set against them, he kind of turns it back on the disciples, and he says, and for you guys, if your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off or gouge it out. For it's better to lose a hand or an eye than it is to end up going to hell. Some really extreme language we see from Jesus. And I want to, it's a very short passage today, this idea of addressing sin and temptation. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time um, in this text unpacking these illustrations that Jesus gives, what we learn about temptations from this passage. Then we're going to spend a lot of time today zooming out to get a broader view of some things the scriptures say about sin and temptation, uh, the importance of pursuing holiness and why we often avoid it. Very practical things. We're going to be jumping around a lot. It's going to be a little, little bit more of an academic, uh, heady type sermon than maybe what we normally do here on Sunday mornings. But we'll end with some really good encouragements um, with all that having been set up. So, Look there in verse 7, and I want us to, just in this first verse, verse 7, I want us to see three realities, three truths about temptation that we get from this passage. So Matthew 18, verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. So Jesus says it's necessary that temptations come. And just from that one phrase, we can gather three pretty significant truths about temptation. One is that it should be expected, right? That Jesus is telling his disciples, like, look, it's going to happen. Without neglecting to pronounce the woes and the judgment against those who create them, he says it is going to happen. It's the reality. It's something you're going to face. Temptation to sin is the reality of the world in which you will live. 1 Peter 4.12 says it this way, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Indwelling sin, sin that we still struggle with even as believers, abides in this world and therefore it's something we will always fight. Another thing we learn is that although temptations are to be expected, although they are not of the Lord, that God's sovereignty is over them, right? That they are all under God's sovereignty. The scriptures teach us that the Lord sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That nothing happens outside the sovereignty and control of God's almighty hand. Now, we also know from James that God is not the author of temptation, right? James makes that very clear that God cannot be tempted and he himself does not tempt anyone. That God is not a God who's constantly laying Uh, temptations to to trap us or to test us or to entangle us like it's some game, right? That God does not tempt us. He's not the author of those things. However, just like trials, God does use the temptations in our lives to bring us 
to himself to make us cling to him, that he uses the, the drama and the struggle that we walk through in this world of sin as part of the process of making us into his image, drawing us to himself, conforming us to the person and likeness of Jesus. I'm going to reference a couple books today. One of them is this one, Overcoming Sin and Temptation by John Owen. This particular, this book was written in the uh, like the 1600s. It's a really old book, but this guy, um, Justin Taylor, modified it and made it a little more palatable. He kind of took the old English and translated it into more modern English so you can actually understand it when you read it. Um, but it's a great book about sin and temptation um, and how to overcome it. But he makes the point in that book regarding this that, um, that God sometimes will leave a struggle in our lives, right? Because we know that God is almighty and that Imagine like a, a particular sin struggle you have where you're constantly battling or maybe even failing to that temptation. We know that God in his power does have the ability to just remove that temptation from us, right? He could do that. And John Owen in that book, he makes the point that perhaps one of the reasons God doesn't do that is to keep us coming back to him and clinging to him and pursuing him. He says, God says, here is one, talking about Imagine God looking down on this person who's struggling with sin. And God said, here is one. If he, could be, if he could be rid of his lust, I should never hear from him anymore. Let him wrestle with this or he is lost. And when we talk about God's sovereignty over temptation, again, God does not cause or bring temptation. But we also know that he is sovereign over it and he protects us from being tempted beyond what we can handle. We see this in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. And then the third thing we see in general in this verse, or these verses rather, about temptation is that it is a very serious thing. Now, obviously, this is a hyperbole, right? I I think we understand this, right? I mean, I don't see a whole lot of people with like missing eyes or arms, so apparently you understand this, right? That Jesus did not literally mean if your eyes are causing you to sin, then literally gouge your eyes out, right? It's an exaggeration. But often, I think what can happen is we look at these exaggerations and go, okay, Jesus obviously doesn't mean that. But then we kind of stop there without taking this time to go, well, then what does he mean? Because with the exaggerations, he's trying to make a strong emphasis and point on the seriousness and gravity of sin and the lengths we should be willing to go to in order to fight it. The scriptures use such aggressive, serious, violent language in regards to how we should deal with sin in our lives. I'm going to walk through just a a list of words we see used in these um, various passages through the New Testament. You have the word fight, resist, put to death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I discipline my body and keep it under my control. Stand against in Ephesians. And then in 2 Peter, make every effort. So all these passages are dealing with our battle against sin and our our striving to attain this measure of holiness in our practical lives. And it's this list of very extreme, violent words. And I want to put that up there because it kind of gives you a picture of God wants us to take this very seriously. Yes, the whole catch your 
arm off and gouge your eye out. That is hyperbole, but it's hyperbole for the sake of getting our attention and making us go, whoa, this is serious stuff. This is not something to just gloss over and move on. But I think for most of us, we would say that's often what we do with sin, right? I mean, that's, that's a struggle I think all of us face is that um, we don't go to these kind of extreme measures, that we downplay the significance of the sin that we struggle with in our lives. And so I want to walk through five reasons that we do not pursue holiness, right? Because taking sin seriously, attacking it, eliminating it, getting it out of our lives is really part of just a pursuit of holiness. So we're going to walk through five reasons we don't pursue holiness the way we ought to according to the scripture. And the first one is this. I think it's a big one for us is the fear of legalism. So I was, uh, I remember being in high school and I don't remember why they did this, but um, it was like during finals week and they were just trying to fill time and they were, they invited this priest to come speak to us. So he was in the auditorium they sent everyone in there. It was actually just all the guys. I think maybe during athletic period or something. But all the guys went in there, and this, this priest wanted to come and kind of give a presentation to us. Like, okay, whatever. So we go in there, and the guy just, like, rails on everyone with this list of sins that, like, he's pretty sure all the high schoolers in that room are struggling with and giving into. And so he starts with lust. And you, you kids... You do this, you do that, you go around and you're, you're doing this with girls and man, shame, shame on you for doing that. And he just moves down the list. Cheating? I know most of you guys. And he just, he just starts relentlessly railing and shaming everyone. And then he gets to the end and that's it. <laughs> like, there's no but, there's no hope, there's no encouragement. It was just this list of things we should all be ashamed of. And here's the thing. None of us wants to be that guy, right? I mean, if you have maybe a, a real person or maybe just kind of a, a stereotype in your mind of someone from a bygone age, like a Bible thumper who just went around telling everyone how bad they were, right? And so all of us can be so scared of being that guy. We can be so scared of legalism that we don't take seriously Jesus' call to holiness. There's another book I want to reference a couple times this morning. It's called The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. And he talks about this idea. He really hammers at this idea that, man, there's so many of us who've been so off kilter in our theology that we have, we have missed and not made room for a pursuit of holiness. And I'll read a couple quotes from this book under this first point of fear of legalism. He summarizes it this way. He says this, There's sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, we don't talk about rules. We're scared of words like diligence, effort, and duty. And he goes on in another part of the book to say, that often means that we, pu- we are pushing the boundaries with language, entertainment, alcohol, and fashion. Of course, holiness is much more than these things. But in an effort to be hip and relevant, any Christian, many Christians have figured holiness has nothing to do with these things. And guys, here at Crosspoint, we are what I would say a gospel-centered church. We, we try to, in all of our sermons and everything we do, we try to keep the gospel at the center. And by the gospel, I just mean this, that we live in this reality in this world that's fallen, that's broken, to the point that all of us have rebelled against God so much and sinned and gotten so far 
off of God's design path for us that we have no hope of working hard enough or making amends with God on our own. And that God saw that, God knew that, and in his mercy, he sent his son Jesus to become one of us and die on the cross to take the punishment for the sins that you and I could never make amends for. And that God made this plan and created this path that because we couldn't scale our way back to God on our own, we couldn't be good enough, we were spiritually bankrupt, but God made a way for us to just believe that Jesus could do it for us and that through faith in Jesus, you and I can be restored into a right relationship with God, not by our own works and doings, but by faith in Him. We, we preach that just about every week here at Cross Point. But if our idea of being gospel-centered does not involve effort and decisions and work in response to the gospel, work on our part, then we have centered ourselves on a false gospel. For the gospel of the New Testament does involve those things as a response to the work of Jesus. And the reality is, in in our lives, there's going to be times when the world applauds us for acting in holiness, right? There's certain things that are in line with God's character and his law that if we abide by those things, things like loving and, and kind, being loving and being kind, that the world will applaud us for that, right? Even those who don't know the Lord will be all for those efforts and those decisions and those stances that we take. However, if we're truly following Jesus, there will be other things that we take a stand on or, or ways in which we act that will seem stodgy, and archaic to those who don't know Jesus. That the world is often not a big fan of some of the ways in which God defines what it means to be holy. So the second reason I want to look at that we don't pursue holiness, this kind of leads right into that, is false perceptions of Jesus. All of us, when we read the Bible, when we read the New Testament, we see these different scenes of Jesus doing things or saying things. And as we gather those little snippets, those pictures, those stories, we begin to build an idea in our mind of who Jesus was. And that that affects how we see his tone, his posture, his attitude, his thoughts, right? We all do this. It's okay. We should do it. We should, as we're reading our Testament, build these ideas. But but we're also always in the danger, right, of overemphasizing the things we read about Jesus that we really like, And kind of dismissing or downplaying the things we read about Jesus that we're not quite as excited about, right? And one of the dangers I think we have in our culture is building this idea of Jesus in our mind of this guy who, yes, he was was a friend of tax collector and sinners. And we love that, right? We love that Jesus was was not judgmental and all these kinds of things. We we love that about him. But we I wonder how much we allow passages like this to play into our image of who Jesus is is and was while he was on the earth. That though Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, he took sin very seriously. Right? You see that in this text. When Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, you know, we we love that idea. We love the idea of Jesus coming and, and healing people, right? Telling this lame man, hey, get up and walk. But do we also account for Jesus saying, hey, by the way, now go and sin no more so that something else bad may not happen to you. 
right? That Jesus restores and heals people, but it's not without expectation and not without commands to repent and be different, walk differently than the life you once had. Passages like this show us that Jesus had a very great love for sinners, but he also wants us to take sin very seriously. The third reason I think we can have some lack of pursuit of holiness is that we don't see it as necessary. If we learn anything from this passage today, it's that the fight against the sin that wants to entangle us is every bit necessary. It is 100% necessary. There was a guy um, in 2003 named Aaron Ralston. Some of you guys have probably heard this story before. He was hiking in Utah, um, doing some repelling, climbing some mountains, stuff like that. Um, and he was out by himself, and while he was climbing, somehow an 800-pound boulder landed on his arm and pinned him to where he was stuck. Now, he was by himself. He'd seen some other hikers on his way in, but no one really knew exactly where he was. Some friends and family knew he'd been out hiking, but didn't know exactly where, what he was doing. So this 800-pound boulder pins on his forearm, and he's stuck. Out in the middle of nowhere, no one knows exactly where he is. Everyone assumes he's fine, but he's not. His life is in danger because he cannot move this 800-pound boulder. So at first, he tries to kind of chip away at it. He tries to kind of get his, he uses his uh, cord from his camelback to kind of wrap around and get, try to get some leverage, find some things to, you know, dislodge it. Realizes that the 800-pound boulder is not going anywhere. It's not going to move. There's nothing he can do about that. And so by about day six, he comes to this realization. He's been sipping his water. He had a couple burritos. He survived a good while just watching it. Then he realized that his arm is actually beginning to deteriorate. And it just kind of dawns him, like, no one's coming at this point. I'm going to die soon if I don't do something. So he decides to cut off his own arm. So the only thing he has at his disposal is this tiny little pocket knife. How many of you guys have ever had a, a Leatherman? Most of you guys, those big ones with the big, it's got the pliers, it's got the nice knife. He didn't have one of those. He had like a tiny, like little miniature, you know, version of that. Just with a little bitty blade on it that wasn't sharp. And he began the process of removing his own arm. He got to the point, I love watching all cringe, this is so fun. He got to the point where there were just bones left. And, you know, he's, he couldn't get through the bones with that knife. So he had to just basically put his weight on his arm and, and break the bones. Like, this is a very graphic story, right? But the guy eventually repels down 65 feet with one hand and survives. The guy's still alive today. Um, that's the picture Jesus is painting of the links we need to be willing to go to to fight sin because of how serious it is, because of the acknowledgement, right, that your life is at stake here. He says, it's better that you cut off your arm, it's better that you gouge an eye, because it's better that you enter into the next life without an arm or without an eye than that your whole body end up going to hell. It's essentially... The decision Aaron Ralston had to make, look, I can, I can keep my arm, but I'm going to die. So it's better to, 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 as hard and difficult and grueling you can imagine, I mean, I don't know, you guys, but I heard that story, like, I would have been dead, right? There's no way I could have done that. Like, I, that just would have been it for me. Sorry, family, right? That, that's it. So, but the amount of work and difficulty that went into that and the links 
he was willing to do a really crazy, unnatural thing, go to extreme measures in order to save his life. And Jesus is saying the same thing. In order to save your life, you've got to be willing to go to very extreme measures to fight against the things that tempt you and want to draw you away from God. And, and clearly, let, let's not miss this. Jesus is talking to the disciples, right? Those who are following him, those who are believing in him. And his message to them in this is not, hey, you need to fight sin or it's really going to hinder your intimacy with God. Your relationship with him won't be at its full potential if you don't do these things. No. Like he is clearly saying here, if you do not take sin seriously and fight against it, you will go to hell. That's the clear message Jesus is delivering here. Now that can rub us wrong, right? Because as good Protestants, those of you who are Protestants in this room, right, you hold fast to the beautiful doctrine that we see in Scripture of justification by faith alone, right? That you know what we discussed earlier. You know in your heart that nothing we could do could make us right before God. No no amount of fighting sin could earn us to be in a right relationship with God. Nothing we can do can attain that on our own effort, right? While we must hold to that, while we must believe that, we must also not ignore the passages in our Bible that describe the idea that if we are not achieving some level of holiness and pursuit of God, that there is no hope for us to enter into God's kingdom. We see this, these two separate threads that maybe seem to be contradictory on the one hand, but that are woven all throughout the New Testament. The idea that we are justified by faith alone, but that nonetheless, without works, without some form of practical obedience, no one will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We discussed this in our membership class, and it's something that often raises some eyebrows with some folks. But you've got verses like James chapter 2 that tells us that faith without works is dead. You've got Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Twice in the book of Matthew, Jesus makes the, the comment that those who endure till the end will be saved. That we do not preach a gospel that says, once you pray this prayer, that's it and you're good. You say the magic words and you're in, right? We do believe that nothing we can do can earn or achieve or attain by our own effort a right standing with God. We are spiritually bankrupt. But we also hold fast to the idea that there is a practical holiness and righteousness without which no one will enter the kingdom. And we, when we come to a passage like this, like I think our first temptation is to go, well, it clearly doesn't mean this, right? It clearly doesn't mean that we have to fight and claw our way into heaven, right? We can't do that on our own. But, and that's good. We, we should recognize that in the context of the rest of the scriptures. That is indeed not what it means. But let's not be so worried about what it doesn't mean that we miss what it does mean, right? Because he is very much saying that your soul is at stake here, right? That the fight against sin is serious and it's to be approached with the gravity and seriousness that it deserves. So the fourth reason we see in this is laziness. Reasons we don't pursue holiness, laziness. Anyone... uh, Anyone ever tried to kick an old habit? Anybody? Anybody succeed? 
<laughs> right? You know how hard it is, right? You know how hard it is when like you've been doing something your whole life. Maybe it's you know, biting your nails, right? I don't know, whatever it is, but so, something that you do, maybe it's a, some sort of a substance dish like smoking or something like that or like, you know, tobacco where, where you just have become, that has become such a part of your life and your rhythm that it is very, very difficult and you have to go to extreme lengths to do something to kick that habit. C.S. Lewis, um, one of my favorite quotes of his is he said, no one knows how bad they are until they have tried very hard to be good, right? And it's true, right? Like, if someone may think they're a good person. You try to be really good, you try to be perfect, you find out really quick, um, you're, you're probably not there. Um, and so, some of you guys have sins in your life that you are keenly aware of. Like, when, I, when I'm up here and I'm talking about sin and struggles and entanglement, there's a particular sin that comes to your mind, and it's like, for me, this is what that is. This is what has me entangled. This is what's keeping me from pursuing God and following God and, and being holy the way that I know that I should on a practical level. This is the thing keeping me from doing that. Now, the others of you guys in here aren't married. Okay? Now, for, if you don't know what that sin is, ask your spouse, right? And you, you'll, you'll be quick to find out what that sin is. But, but, but the reality is, some of you guys have, there's like a clear example of that. Others of you, maybe you don't know exactly what that is. But we all know that there are things we struggle with and that entangle us. And so to the one, those of you guys that you know that thing that's struggling, it's beating you down, that maybe it's something you, you, haven't, you haven't really gotten victory over yet, that you've kind of, you're going in and out of it, up and down, you just can't seem to kick it. Or maybe you've got some victory, but man, you are constantly having to push that thing down. I want to share another quote by John Owen in that book. And he talks about this idea that we will always be having to fight that battle. Fighting the battle against sin is not something you reach a point where like, okay, I'm good, I've beat it, now I can relax and not deal with that anymore and move on. Sometimes God miraculously just kind of pulls the temptation out of our lives and we don't have the desire to chase that thing anymore. Usually he does not. Usually that desire is still there and we will fight it until the day that we die. And John Owen is, is addressing that and he says this, if then sin will be always acting, if we are not always mortifying, that's the word he used for, for killing sin, if you're not always mortifying, we are lost creatures. He that stands still and allows his enemy to issue double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered. Listen to this, this is so good. Every day, sin either foils or is foiled prevails or is prevailed upon and it will be so while we live in this world walking with jesus is not just a matter of every day and every week trying to discover new sins in our lives and attack them i don't think jesus wants us to be on like a perpetual witch hunt for the sins that we still struggle with that's that's not the summary of what it means to follow Jesus, to constantly be inspecting and upbringing stuff in our lives. But that is part of it. Part of following Jesus is recognizing that I'm not the person I should be because of the sin that still dwells within me. That yes, Jesus ultimately set me free from the penalty of sin and sin has no power over me, but we haven't yet been fully redeemed and released from those effects of sin. And, I, and part of following Jesus is 
recognizing that sin that still dwells in me and dealing with it, fighting it off, putting it aside, trying to move on from it, to kill it, to become more like Jesus. And then lastly, this one's, this one's real, real practical here. We often equate personal holiness with perfection. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible talks about holiness in two ways. There, there's a sense, and depending on the context, the Bible talks about holiness as something that we just aren't, right? Or righteousness, right? That we simply are not righteous. And the only way we even stand a chance or will ever come close to being in right standing with God and being considered approved in his sight is by faith in the work of Jesus, right? That holiness is not something we can generate or achieve. It has to be put on externally from the righteous life of Jesus, But there's other contexts in which the Bible talks about holiness, and it's not in that same context, but it is in a context of a very practical outworking. Let me give you just an example. Job chapter 1, verse 8. God says this of Job, A blameless and upright man who turns away from evil. Now God is not saying, by saying Job is blameless and upright, God is not saying that Job is without sin. He's not saying that Job is perfect, but he is saying that there's, there's a righteousness and a holiness there in which Job walks that sets him apart as clearly someone who is following the Lord. Similarly, the Bible uses that same word blameless of Zachariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. Again, God is not saying that Zachariah and Elizabeth were without sin, but that they walked in such a way that their pursuit of the Lord was so evident that they could be described as, as holy, as righteous, as blameless among their generation. So when we talk about the pursuit of becoming holiest, we're not, we're not, talking, about, we're not talking about a goal that's completely unachievable, right? Now we're talking about perfection, that's exactly what it is, right? That is not achievable. That's why we need Jesus. But in response to the gospel, the scriptures say that we, we can live a life that would be described as, as holy and blameless as we pursue the Lord and are conformed into his image. Now, we, are not, we will not be perfect in that. We will stumble. But there is a level of, of righteousness in which we can walk that is indeed attainable to us. I think part of the reason we get confused with this is we've, we've kind of bought into this idea that all sins are created equal. Again, let me, I gotta, feel like I've got to disclaim everything I say in this sermon. So there is a sense in which all sins separate us from God, right? James talks about this, that he who's broken one law has guilty of breaking all of it, right? Jesus said if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. But, but let's not mistake that, though. Jesus did not mean that in a literal sense, just like he didn't mean literally cut off your arm, right? Like, Imagine this, like, let's just say, you know, me and the elders, other elders, we get together on a regular basis, um, not as much in the summer, but usually every week or two weeks, and one of the first things we'll do when we get together is we'll just do some personal updates, and oftentimes there'll be some confession there. Man, here's what's going well, here's what's not going well. Maybe that's just a situation, maybe it's a sin struggle, and if I were to come to the elders and say, man, um, this guy the other day like cut me off or did something really bad to hurt me. And I've just been struggling with anger. Now they would probably not go, whoa, 
Well, the Bible says if you're struggling with anger, you might as well have killed that guy, so we need to remove you immediately because we cannot have murderers on our elder board, right? They would not say that. Now, if I were to come to that same meeting and say, guys, i got to confess, this guy cut me off, I ran him off the road, I stabbed him, he's dead now, there would probably need to be some more action taken on that, right? Guys, we, let's, not be, let's not be naive here. We get this, right? We get that not all sin is the same, and it's not all the same to God. Yes, it all separates us from him, but there's a difference in someone who struggles with sin but is ultimately following Jesus and someone with just blatant disregard to God's law and God's commands. The way the young puts it this, he says, when we think of all sin being the same, we think, why bother trying to pursue holiness, right? If every little sin makes me Osama bin Hitler, then why even try, right? Like if every single sin makes God just disgusting, disgusted with me and disapproving of me, but God is not that. To those of us who believe in Jesus, listen, God is our father. What father, when his son cleans the garage and and puts the paints on the wrong shelf, says, your work is nothing to me, away with you, right? That is not how God treats us in our struggle to follow him and and, in our struggle against sin, but rather God is actually pleased with us as our Father as we learn to follow Him and obey Him and eliminate certain sins from our lives. You see that in the idea of the Old Testament, certain sins are punished one way, other more heinous sins are punished as something else. And guys, I think it's okay that, to see the difference in those things. Does that make sense? Like, I see, um, hear my wife talking to um, other moms sometimes about their struggles with parenting and sometimes they're talking about what's, what is struggles with sin and parenting but it's like, you know, anger or you know, like kind of popping off at the kids and stuff like that and they're, they're, they kind of chuckle about it not because they don't take the sin seriously but they're kind of laughing at themselves because they're doing the same thing and they're trying to make headway but they keep, you know, taking a step back. That, that levity is not necessarily an indication that we're not taking sin seriously, right? I mean, I have a, I have a friend who, um, named Elizabeth who tells this story about when she was getting a C-section um, for, for her delivery and how the doctors were making jokes about their, making jokes to each other about their favorite sports teams while they were doing a C-section, right? And it's not because they were, didn't take the operation seriously, but it's just the reality that that operation is something they do every single day. And it's the same with us in sin, right? Some of these little sins we battle every single day we don't want to chuckle at it and dismiss it, but there, it's okay for there to be a little bit different approach to that than there is a sin that has you like deep in the weeds and is pulling you away from the things of God. It's okay to have a different approach to those two situations. So those are the nature of temptation and fire beings when we don't fight it well. You guys have a, a good day. I don't want to end it that way, obviously. Um, in some ways, sermons are kind of like writing a letter. It's, what's really cool is that, look at these letters in the New Testament. Paul, Peter, John, they almost always end the letter with some, just some encouragement and admonishment, you know? Um, and so I don't, I don't think Paul or Peter would ever write a letter standalone of, of this passage, right? They would never just say, hey, everyone, if you're sinning, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. God bless, have a good week, right? That's not how they would do that. And so I don't want, we don't want to do sermons that way either. So let me... Let me end with some of those passages of just admonishment in this. So the first one is just that holiness is possible. This, 
This idea of walking in this way that, 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 that Zachariah and Elizabeth are described and that Job is described as being holy, that that is, for everyone in this room, that is attainable. This idea of eliminating some sin from our lives to make us more like Christ, that is an attainable thing. Now, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, but it is something we can do. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's wrapping up his letter. This, the church in Corinth was a mess. If you guys don't know this, there's a reason it's 16 chapters, right? I mean, it's like 12 of those are just like calling out all the ridiculous sins that church is dealing with and addressing it. And at the end of it, Paul says this. I want you to pay attention to this family and how Paul summarizes their life. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And he goes on to say, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Now look, we all know that Stephanus and his family were not perfect, right? Paul is not saying that Stephanus has never sinned or that Stephanus does not struggle or that Stephanus has not at times been problematic for people, right? He probably has. But on the whole, Paul is saying, here's who this guy is and his family. There are people that have devoted themselves to the service of the saints and refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Here's the thing, guys. Like, There are so many of you guys in this church that I would describe that way. That I would describe you as this. Like as, as holy, as, as, as different, right? As people who have devoted themselves to the service of God's people and have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. I hate to give, part of me doesn't want to give an example of this because I don't want anyone to feel left out, so I'm just going to do one. That way everyone feels left out. Um, so we have a family in our church, um, Stephen and Lauren Cother, who they've got about two more Sundays with us and then they're gone. You know, they're, they're moving to Waco. Um, they might be able to come back hopefully in the future. But just, just to show you a real-life example of that, I, if you've never spent any time with the Cothers, you should before they leave, you will find this to be true of them. That they are a family that when you get around them, they devote themselves to the service. That they are so committed to serving and loving this people. And many of you would say with me, they have refreshed my spirit. Them being refreshed my spirit as it has yours. And again, there, there are many people I could point to in this room and say that exact same thing, but that's just one family of an idea of what it looks like, that, that holiness, that righteousness, that is attainable. It is not out of reach. It is not something we will never get to. And then secondly, there is a finish line. That although this struggle will last until the day we die, that there is a finish line in our battle against sin. And again, if there are those of you in this room who, man, you are just neck deep in this battle against sin, and there's a particular sin that just has you tangled up or is always nipping at your heels and you are frustrated because you feel like that battle will never end, there's good news that it will, that God will not leave us in this already redeemed but not yet taken home state, that he will take us home. So I'm just going to read this passage and we'll close with this. First Peter, some of Peter's closing words in his book, First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So this is my admonishment to us as we have considered 
these things regarding sin and temptation. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your knowledge of the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for that hope that we have that, that this battle we face that is not against flesh and blood but is still very real is one that you have won and that one day we will reap the full benefits of you, our King's victory over this battle. That you do not leave us to fight perpetually through eternity but God, that the effects of your redemption and reconciliation will one day fully come to pass. God, may we look forward to that when we consider sin, when we're in battle in sin, when we, when we, though we strive when we stumble, God, may we remember that it will not always be so. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.